birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person who was born on this day at some point in history, somewhere in the world, who made a positive lasting impact. Today, August 12th, we're going to talk about the fabulous, the famous, the unforgettable Gladys Bentley. So today's episode is going to be the last for this show. This one-year project has helped buoy me through the first year of the pandemic, and it gave me something to do with my mind and my voice. I've really enjoyed this project thus far. I hope you have too. And I feel um, a sense of peace in closing the chapter now as I start a new master's program at university in preparation to become a social worker. Our human history today feels like a great way to end our podcast. An incredibly talented Black woman who was an accomplished performer, a blues pianist and a singer, a pioneering drag king, and for the earlier part of her life, an out and proud gay woman. During the peak of Gladys's stardom, the Harlem Renaissance, she was as well-known and popular as any of her contemporaries, yet history has largely kept her, and almost all of our humans in history, from the books as she was a flamboyantly butch lesbian who had no problem singing body songs, openly dating women, dressing in men's suits, and just basically being a badass. But if history has shown us anything, it's that society really doesn't like black women, especially strong, confident ones. And as a result, Gladys's fame and talent have been largely erased from the canon of common knowledge. Gladys Alberta Bentley was the eldest of four born in Philadelphia to George and Mary Bentley. George was African-American and Mary was from Trinidad. Gladys's childhood was not a pleasant one. Um, She came from a very poor family, lived in a really bad neighborhood. But perhaps the worst part was that Mary had no desire to be Gladys's mom. Mary, when she was pregnant with Gladys, had convinced herself that her first pregnancy would produce a son. And when she gave birth to a girl, she was so outraged that she refused to feed, hold, or touch her daughter for six months. Gladys's grandmother had to bottle feed her to keep her alive until Mary begrudgingly agreed to take back her own daughter. This rejection obviously had a profound impact on Gladys, and she would later discuss how, as a result of this, she hated all of her brothers that followed her. She never wanted a man to touch her. She wore boys' clothes to school. She had a crush on a female school teacher and became an overweight tomboy. Between her mother's innate dislike of her daughter, Gladys's insistence on wearing her brother's suits instead of dresses, and her amorous feelings towards women, she was a target of extreme abuse by classmates and family members. She was an outsider at school and unwanted in her own home. Mary and George even sent the child to doctors in an attempt to fix Gladys' attraction to women. By the time Gladys was a teenager, she realized that her peers and her family would never really accept her, so she ran away to New York City. In 1923, the 16-year-old landed in Harlem. She didn't have much of a plan outside from knowing that she could play the piano and she could sing, and there had to be a spot for her somewhere. This was the Harlem Renaissance, obviously. She kept herself fed at first by performing at rent parties, which were gatherings in apartments where a cover charge was put in place in exchange for bootleg hooch and entertainment. Her predilection for masculine outfits, her switching up the song lyrics to make them more raunchy, and her strong voice and piano playing soon made her quite popular. One day, one of the neighborhood's most notorious gay speakeasies, the Clam House, 
over on 133rd Street advertised that it was in need of a piano player. However, the proprietor was requesting a male piano player, but Gladys didn't let that stop her. She showed up to the audition in a suit with slicked back hair, introduced herself as Barbara Minton, but asked everyone to call her Bobby. The proprietor loved her talent and her act, so she got the job. Starting at $35 a week, about $5.50 in today's money, Gladys used the Clam House as the place to perfect her act. She had a deep voice, smoky and sexy and rough, and her scatting sounded a lot like a trumpet. She played piano with an anger and a fury and a skill and passion that was unique and memorable. She could scat effortlessly, and she loved taking popular songs and replacing mundane lyrics about love with graphic sexual verses, much to the delight of her audiences. Langston Hughes described her performance as an amazing exhibition of musical energy, a large, dark, masculine lady whose feet pounded the floor while her fingers pounded the keyboard, a perfect piece of African sculpture animated by her own rhythm. Advertised as a male impersonator, the Clam House was packed every night with fans who delighted in her musical abilities as much as they delighted in watching her openly flirt with women in the audience. Gladys proudly referred to herself as a bull dagger, the popular term for a butch lesbian, and she adopted a nightly uniform of a tux and a top hat and full makeup. Playing with the concept of identity and presentation would become a theme throughout her life. Due to prohibition, white patrons were flocking to Harlem speakeasies by the droves, allowing Gladys's reputation to leave the confines of the neighborhood. Her fame grew and grew until the Clam House was officially renamed after her stage name, Barbara's Exclusive Club. Her salary jumped to $125 a week, which is about $2,000 in today's money, and she was able to buy herself a penthouse and hire servants and buy a fancy car. Some gossips say that she was actually living in the penthouse of one of her lesbian lovers, but that's up for debate. Gladys next moved onto the Ubangi Club on Park Avenue, one of a number of so-called pansy parlors, clubs notorious for attracting gay and trans clientele. There was a whole pansy movement at the time, voyeuristic whites descending on black gay clubs for the sexy, scandalous entertainment that they couldn't find in the stuffier whites-only clubs. The opinion on gender-bending performers was split. Some found it entertaining, some found it filthy, and for others, it was just their truth. Gladys may have been the headliner for a while at the Yubangi, but she kept her options open, doing gigs at the Savoy and the Cotton Clubs. She also began to tour the country, performing at spots in Chicago and Hollywood, among others. In Hollywood, she became the darling of the Tinseltown set, with Barbara Stanwyck, Cesar Romero, and Cary Grant becoming huge fans. Sadly, her fame was not universal, though. There were a lot of people that were basically pushing back, even members of the black community, because they felt like this brazen lifestyle that she was living was drawing unwanted attention to the black community, endangering the racial uplift that they were struggling for during the Jim Crow era. Gladys was shamed and castigated everywhere from print to pulpit. Words like degenerate, sex pervert, abomination were used to describe her openly gay lifestyle and her distinctively masculine persona. In August of 1928, she signed a record deal with OK Records, recording eight sides over the next year. Her recording career would span two decades and take her through a number of recording companies, including Victor and Excelsior. With the end of the decade, though, came a drop in her career. Prohibition ended, and white clientele no longer sought out the speakeasies of Harlem. Clubs were actually regulated much more stringently, and and performers that were accused of peddling smut or violating the social moral code could be arrested. The euphemism used by journalists and cops was disorderly conduct. In 1937, Gladys moved to Los Angeles. 
She expected to resume her New York act, but she found a lot more pushback against her desire to wear men's clothes on stage. California still had anti-cross-dressing laws on the books from back in the 1800s, and it wasn't uncommon for drag queens and kings to be harassed, arrested, or even chased by mobs and beaten. Hollywood wanted its entertainment clean at the time. The Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code, had been in place in Hollywood since 1934, and its job was to keep films free of all smut. Smut included everything at the time, from homosexuality to premarital sex to interracial marriage to making fun of the church to childbirth to sedition. And Gladys really struggled to get work done because, you know, she was just getting all of this pushback and this from people that are like, tone down your act, and she refused to do so. When this gossip columnist asked her, about the rumors that she had just gotten married, Gladys actually said, yes, I have. And the journalist was like, oh, what's the man's name? And Gladys said, man, it's a woman. And the journalist's eyes almost bugged out at that. And she probably almost faded dead away when Gladys added, oh, by the way, it's a white woman. Now, whether this actually happened or not is up for debate because Gladys would sometimes say shocking things to get a reaction. But this kind of press did not endear her to an increasingly conservative Los Angeles. America was actually becoming more and more conservative as a whole. Post-World War II, McCarthyism swept the land, and two things that they most feared and inexplicably connected were communism and homosexuality. Senator McCarthy was responsible for not only the well-known Red Scare, but also the lesser-discussed Lavender Scare, which was a push to rid all government agencies of gay employees. Hundreds of openly queer government employees were labeled as sex perverts, and they were fired based solely on their lifestyle. And this is the part of Gladys's life that is difficult for a lot of people, this part that's about to come up here. So Gladys found herself in a time and a place where who she was was wrong, and it was impacting her ability to work. She literally couldn't get jobs, and she was not able to live a life that was free of harassment. So she decided to once again, shall we say, reinvent herself. And she stopped wearing suits, she began to wear dresses and heels, and she started taking female hormones in an effort to cure her sexuality. In August of 1952, she published an article in Ebony Magazine cringingly titled, I'm a Woman Again. And in it, she talked about seeking out medical treatment to make her more feminine. And she shared that she'd been married to two men. One of those men, Charles Roberts, was a 28-year-old cook, um, but he denied actually having been married to her. This article includes photos of her making the bed and cooking, uh, all while wearing a dress. Of her previous life, Gladys said, For many years I lived in a personal hell. Like a great number of lost souls, I inhabited the half-shadow of no man's land which exists between the boundaries of the two sexes. This was a shocking twist in the life of someone who had always lived as a proud lesbian woman and who knew that she was attracted to women since she was nine years old. But between the pressures of society to fit into, into traditional gender roles, and her inability to get work using her old stage persona, Gladys may have felt that this radical change was the one way to not only get back to making a good living, but to also finally feel accepted in a society that had always fetishized her, but never really accepted her. Plus, this quote-unquote reawakening finally made her mother accept her, and Mary moved in with the now single Gladys. To prove... I don't know to who, herself, society, God, that she was now a real woman living a normal life, her words, she decided to become a minister. But she never completed her training because she died suddenly on January 18th, 1950, at the age of only 52, following a bout of either influenza or pneumonia. 
Today, Gladys lives on not only in song and TV, she actually appeared on an episode of Groucho Marx's show, You Bet Your Life, but also in literature, as she inspired characters in Carl Van Vechten's novel Parties, Clement Woods' novel Deep River, and Blair Niles' novel Strange Brother. My sources today were Wikipedia, PBS, and the Smithsonian. Thank you again to my listeners for the last year. It's been a pleasure. Take good care.